The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. So when we started with the vertical gardens at the restaurants, we realized that all the conditions, so we were growing in a greenhouse with the Zipro Towers, we'd grow the leafy greens or the herbs to be ready for harvest. And then we would take them in the Zipro Tower and set them up at the in-store or in-restaurant garden so that the restaurants could harvest there and use it. The truth is that we were a bit too advanced for the time of the market in in Spain at that time. And they weren't ready to pay a premium for that. So they used it more as a marketing thing for decoration. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 6 is underway. Welcome back to all of you who were listening and anxiously anticipating the kickoff of season six. Thanks for your patience. It's uh, really a passion project of mine, and we put a lot of work into making sure we get the best folks on the show and we put out a quality product. And sometimes that takes a little bit longer (laughs) than expected. So I appreciate uh, you hanging around. And if you are new to the show and you are listening for the very first time, first of all, thank you. I'm sure you're in the right place, as this is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. Hopefully you had a chance during this hiatus to catch up on season five episodes. We finished off that season with founder and CEO of VegBed, Albert Lin, so make sure you've listened to that one. He joined the show to talk about the work he's doing to create a better and easier way to use a growing medium for the hydroponic community. And he talked about his experience as an early stage startup ops expert, the entrepreneurial mindset, and what he's cultivated that would be an advice he would give to other founders. Very, very inspiring. I love the entrepreneurial nature being an entrepreneur myself. So I, I know you'll enjoy that episode with Albert. Okay, we are kicking off season six with 
Inez Sagrario. She's the co-founder at Econoki. And Inez and I met at Indoor AgTech NYC. Fantastic event. I've gotten so many follow-up interviews from that conference. And we were able to connect and we hit it off. And I knew I needed to have her on the show. She talks about her eclectic background, including her time at the Cluster Competitiveness Group and the work she's currently doing at Econoki, which is an indoor farm specializing in growing quality hops. They do that year-round with a significantly lower water and carbon footprint. On this episode, we talked about our shared experience as entrepreneurs, the power of strategic analysis, and how the indoor ag tech industry is evolving. She shares some insights into the growth cycle of hops, her passion for sustainability, and her special relationship with her co-founder, Anna. I'm always fascinated to see all the different crops that are being grown indoors as I delve deeper into this space, and so I'm really fascinated by everything that's happening. I want to remind you that if you're enjoying this episode or past episodes, I would love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next episode. As I've mentioned before, this is a labor of love and a lot of work goes into the production of these episodes. And we are always on the lookout to partner with like-minded companies in the space such as the ones that you hear about on this show. So if you are interested in partnering with us to sponsor a season or a batch of episodes, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Okay, before we get into this uninterrupted conversation with Inez, a few words from the folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Vertical Farming Weekly. Each week, our team member Noah brings you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming, including updates when episodes go live. Sign up today at verticalfarmingweekly.com. This podcast is produced by Fullcast, our full-service done-for-you podcast agency. If you are interested in learning how a podcast would be beneficial for your brand, learn more at fullcast.co. So, Ines Sagrario, co-founder at Econoque, thank you so much for joining me on Vertical Farming Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So uh, where uh, is home for you right now? Home for me is boiling Madrid. We're in the middle of, of a heat wave. So yeah. yeah, it's about 40 degrees Celsius outside. That's about 104 Fahrenheit, I think. So That's really hot. It's pretty wow. hot. Yes. Are you near any sort of body of water you can get to pretty quickly? <laughs> a pool. Yeah, okay. That's about it. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Were you, is that home were you born and raised there i was i was born in madrid but i've actually lived in 10 different countries over the course of my wow. life so yeah. i'm i'm a bit of a true citizen of the world and actually the place i consider my origin is a small village in the north of spain in la rioja it's a place called uruñuela okay that's where my mom is from where my grandparents are from and it's where we spent all our summers when we were kids so it's sort of the place where happiness takes me. <laughs> How often do you get there? I go normally like three or four times a year. Yeah. Yeah. And my kids love it too. It's a tiny village. You can roam free. Sort of, it's freedom. So that sounds beautiful. <laughs> if you have any pictures, always happy. I'm looking for fun stuff to drop in the show notes every now and then. So. <laughs> well, it's Rioja is the wine region, one of the wine regions in Spain. And this is actually yeah. in the part of Rioja that has the wine so it's you know the scenery oh. it's all vineyards and stuff it's really nice my partner likes specific kinds of wine and she went to a restaurant one time and she liked the wine or she had them explain like what type of 
flavor it was. And the word they gave her was barnyardy, like a barnyard where where you raise <laughs> farm animals. But okay. that was like the because it's very it's like a bit darker. It's not as sweet, and it's you can kind of taste like. Not the dirt, but like the land in it. So a lot of times I've brought Riojas home and there's been a couple where she's just like, yep, like that's it. Like that's the flavor. Like It's a very earthy, too, the Rioja usually yeah, has a very earthy yeah. taste. Yeah. And actually I can usually recognize a Rioja pretty easily in a blind taste because okay. we've tried, we've had wine actually since I can remember. Of course. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. At family meals, if they open a bottle of wine that was specifically unique or very tasty or something they'd pass around the whole table with the nine grandchildren so that we could recognize <laughs> this is good wine you know oh, so we just wet our lips and say ah okay and that's oh, education yeah. i love that that's beautiful and it's such a complete change in behavior here in the states because people have talked about this a lot how we're so like restricting in terms of what our kids can't do and I, we don't allow them to make mistakes and we're just like don't you know don't drink and we're holding them like we pretend it's not going to happen and obviously we, everyone knows the story like these kids go to college and then they just start drinking for the very first time ever and it never ends up well <laughs> for us wine is and beer too in spain but especially wine in in la rioja is part of culture so it's not a trying to get drunk, but rather I'm enjoying yeah. a social moment normally with family or with friends. So. Yeah. And so we met at Indoor Ag Tech NYC and you had reached out because I think you had been listening to the show already. Yes, I'm a super fan. You've accompanied <laughs> me on many a, a trip when I'm yeah. running away from Madrid and going to the beach. So it's a long drive and I sort of binge listen to podcasts and the Vertical Farming podcast is always very entertaining. How long have you been a podcast listener? I think I started with the pandemic, like more okay. solidly. Yeah. 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 So during the lockdown, but I used to listen to a few every once in a while, something that was recommended. But since then, I've sort sure. of hooked onto it. I've tried to make it easy by giving it a very simple and clear name. <laughs> it is very simple and clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's very obvious what you're going to get when you see a show called the Vertical Farming Podcast. So let's rewind the clock a little bit. We can go as fast as you'd like, but coming out of university, what type of jobs were you interested in? What type of industry were you interested in working in? I studied economics in university. And actually, when I was, I think, in my third year, one of my professors started talking about the Rio Conference and about sustainable development. So this was back in '94. I think. Okay. And that just sort of clicked in my mind and I really found sort of my purpose. This is what I want to do for a living. So actually I finished university in Madrid and I went to Oxford to study development economics there. And then from there, I knew I wanted to go understand what were big development program problems. So I went to India and I spent three years in India. And I initially I was working for the Spanish embassy there and then started working for a Spanish company called Chupa Chups. They make lollipops. I know Chupa Chups. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was there for three years and then moved back to Spain and sort of shifted over to, okay, I want to start working on real development work and joined the African Development Bank in Cote d'Ivoire, lived through the coup there and the beginning of the civil war. So that was wow. an experience, moved to Tunisia, still with the bank, 
And then I left the bank and joined a consulting company that was focused on regional development okay. projects using sort of cluster-based approach of looking at sort of analyzing strategic challenges and the opportunities for specific sector linked to a territory. And that's what I was doing for the remainder of my career until I started Econoke initially with a different name. And yeah, and with that consulting company, I lived in Argentina, in, in Chile, in Brazil. And then eventually I came back to Madrid. I came back home and that's when <laughs> I decided to start this project. That's a wonderful story. Out of all the places you've been and lived, do you have some favorites? Obviously, like nothing like Spain, but there's so many mixes of cultures, I imagine. I don't know if I would call it culture shock, but just differences, even just in going to Oxford and then going to India and Africa. What are some of the experiences are, that stand out for you? I don't know. I can't say I have a favorite place because each place was unique for the time of my life that I was there for. But sure. India, I think, got me hooked on sort of surprises on not having a monotonous life because there, you know, yeah. from opening the tap in the morning and wondering, will I have water today, you know? Wow. But anyways, and, and all the amazing places that you can discover in India just by taking a night train from Delhi anywhere else. So that was fantastic. But I would say, I mean, any place, Argentina, I was in Bariloche, the absolute amazing nature that you have there. Wow. Chile, I traveled, I moved actually sort of from one city to the next for a couple of years. Amazing country. Brazil is where I met my husband. and I love Brazil. Yeah. So obviously a special place in my heart. I don't sure. know. I think I lived in the U.S. as a kid, so and, and that's made me a big part of who I am. So I think I'm just a combination of all these different places and I like to yeah. think that I took a little piece of each place with me. It's like a, you're a citizen of the world. Yeah. Where in the U.S. did you live? I lived in Maryland. Okay. How's the culture shock there? <laughs> this was 1987 when we moved there. So oh, 35 years okay. ago, yeah. the world was much, much bigger at that time. It was a big shock precisely because of that. I remember like just writing back to my grandmother and saying, everything here is just very big, except for dogs and tomatoes, because we'd never seen a cherry tomato. And suddenly all I could oh, see in funny. the US was cherry tomatoes. I'm like, why are these tomatoes so small? And everybody had these little tiny dogs that we weren't used to seeing too much in Spain. So yeah. That's funny. You mentioned part of what was driving some of your early choices was working in the field of sustainability. When did this become like awake for you? Is this something just values that you picked up from your family? Or is this something you saw as you started going through your education process and seeing the condition of the world and realizing how this was something that was important to focus on? I think it's probably a combination of both things. So my grandparents are farmers originally, and my mother is a scientist and worked with biomass, with renewable energy since the 70s. So sort of wow. a very advanced, sort of focusing on new type of energies from the beginning. So I think I always had that at home. And then I studied economics because I wanted to understand how the world works. And then it was just the explanation of sustainable development, of combining the economic, the social and the environment. It just made click in my head. For me, everything became clear when that professor, David Riva, he explained this. And I was like, 
it makes sense. This is why I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having parents like that made for some interesting conversations at dinner. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, my dad's an engineer too. I think it's very sort of science and asking questions sort of focus. Yeah. And the cool thing is that they're also translating that over to their grandchildren too. So many of the grandchildren in our family want to become scientists because of the inspiration that they get from their grandparents. Yeah. And so prior to Econoke, the company or the consultancy you were with was competitiveness? Yes, that's it. And that's the one where you, it looks like you did a little bit of the traveling. <laughs> yes, quite a bit <laughs> of traveling, yeah. quite a bit of traveling, uh, sort of being living in those places. But apart from that, I think I worked in about 15 or 20 different places, just traveling wow. to those projects, Botswana, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Mexico, wow. Colombia, Ecuador. I mean, just really all over. It's a, an amazing experience. Yeah. Did you ever pick up a habit of like, collecting one specific thing from every country earrings <laughs> earrings yeah. okay there you go i was always sort of living off a suitcase so all i could get were little earrings that's smart yeah something light yes <laughs> yeah if when you think about your time there given how it was a significant portion of your career what were some of the takeaways as you started working on all these and completing all these projects from your time at competitiveness i think i mean competitiveness for me was the school of my life i had Brilliant bosses, the founder and the other founding partner at that time were amazing in terms of strategic analysis. And I really just learned everything that I know about strategic analysis. I learned it from them. And I think it's really helped me to, I've seen, I've worked with so many different industries and in so many different places that in the end, you realize analysis is about connecting lots of different dots and the more dots you have, the more you can connect and the more creatively that Makes you sense. can connect those dots. So I think I am where I am today. And I've been able to create together with the rest of my co-founders this really cool project because I had that background from competitiveness where all I did for 15 years or a big part of what I did was understanding trends, biopurchase criteria, technologies, how things are changing, how fast they should be changing, all these challenges, all that I bring from my experience in competitiveness. And in fact, I still collaborate with competitiveness. I love it. I can't break away 100%, but they know that now I have a new baby. Yeah. And how important were those relationships and working with folks that you consider mentors in terms of your growth? I think for me, it has been fundamental, really being able to have people that have amazing sort of intellectual capabilities, but also a very direct human connection and that have that really that vocation to teach and to support others, to transfer the, that knowledge to others. I mean, for me, yeah, no doubt, very yeah. instrumental in the way I have developed my career. So which came first, the awareness of what was happening in the vertical farming space or this itch that you needed to scratch to become an entrepreneur? <laughs> I think the first, I never thought okay. I would become an entrepreneur. I never thought I would build something from scratch. I mean, at competitiveness, I had become a partner. So I was really actually running the business together with the partners there and 
So that part I knew I could do, but I'd never thought of creating something new. But actually, I was working in a project uh, with horticulture producers in Chile, and I started doing the technology prospecting, seeing the trends, what was going on. And I actually did a trip to the U.S. to visit in New York and Brooklyn what was going on, what were the trends in restaurants and sort of in the retail, etc. And that's when I found vertical farming, actually. The first one that I found was freight farms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so actually the project, we started it initially using Zipro Towers. Okay. Yeah. So from freight farms, we got to Bright Agrotech and then, yeah. And so talk a little bit more now about the genesis of idea. You said that Ekonoki was called something else before as well. Yeah. <laughs> so the original name is Achipampanos, and that's actually still the official name of the company, but we go by this other okay. brand, Achipampanos, nobody can pronounce it. And it's actually <laughs> a word that my grandmother made up. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's the word that she would say when we asked on Sundays, we'd go have lunch at her house and say, grandma, what's yeah. for lunch? And nine grandchildren coming in the kitchen to ask you what's for lunch it's you know and it just really means don't worry whatever i give you will be good you know (laughs) so that's the official name of the company and we started the idea the initial idea was to set up vertical gardens at the point of consumption so in restaurants and schools and cafeterias even in community centers anywhere that people would like to have access to live leafy greens and herbs. Yeah. So that was the initial idea. We tried that for a couple of years and then pivoted and then we pivoted again. I think we've learned a lot about pivoting. (laughs) What was the inspiration for the first pivot or the need for the first pivot? So when we started with the vertical gardens at the restaurants, it was mainly at restaurants. So we realized that all the conditions. So we were growing in a greenhouse with the Zipro Towers. We'd grow the leafy greens or the herbs to be ready for harvest. And then we would take them in the Zipro Tower and set them up at the in-store or in-restaurant garden so that the restaurants could harvest there and use it. The truth is that I think we were a bit too advanced for the time of the market in Spain at that time. And they weren't ready to pay a premium for that. So they used it more as a marketing thing for decoration. And you know that edible plants, you can't have them for decoration. After you haven't eaten the lettuce, it'll just start flowering and going all over the place. So they ended up wanting to have the produce at the place for too long without using it. And the conditions in each restaurant were different in terms of the heat or the cold or the light or the humidity. The waiters, which were usually charged with sort of Put it extending the light at night or filling up the water tank, they would forget. So that's the last thing you want to do as a waiter, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it ended up being sort of very artisanal. At the okay. time, we also joined an accelerator program, Eatable Adventures in Madrid, and they sort of very nicely questioned us so that we started thinking of other alternatives. And so in 2019, we decided to start trying something that. Some of the restaurants that were asking us, but also something we thought that could eventually get to consumers, which was our, we call them mini gardens of leafy greens, of baby leaf. Okay. So we'd grow them on a substrate, 
so vertically and without using the Zagro towers anymore. And then we'd sort of transplant them to little compostable trays and they would be taken live to either the restaurant or the consumers. Okay. So that was sort of our first pivot. Also, that came coupled with moving out of the greenhouse. Okay. In 2019, we had a terrible month of March in Madrid. Temperatures outside went to like 32, 33 degrees Celsius inside the greenhouse without having set up the protective measures and stuff. It went up to like 42 and it just, all the plants just sort of stopped. They said, okay, I don't know what's happening. I'm just going to stay put. (laughs) And really in June, there was another huge heat wave. They even had to close down schools. I mean, it was just, we just realized climate change was here. It wasn't something that we were reading in the news of things impacting. You're experiencing it firsthand. Pacific Islands or things like that. No, it was here. It was going to stay. Even if we wanted to build sort of a high-tech greenhouse and stuff, we realized, okay, the sun intensity and the length of the summers in Madrid is not going to make it feasible. So at that time also, we met another team of founders. So Antonio and, and Javier, they'd been growing microgreens indoors already. So we really hit it off. It was, we realized we had the same values, the same, we were looking for the same thing. They were researchers at the university. Okay. Anna was very good. My co-founder, I didn't mention her. She's an agricultural engineer, so she knew what she was doing. And, um, and myself, I was doing more of the, sa- the sales and the business organization and Anna, all the production. So we said, okay, why don't we join both projects? And that's when they convinced us to move indoors. They said, look, We've okay. been already doing it for a year, no, a couple of years, said, we can do it. You can control it much better. Let's try it. So we joined forces. We joined the two projects. That's when we also changed the name to Econoque. And okay. um, so it's a result of the fusion of these two projects. And, uh, and we moved indoors. We had our first harvest ready to take to restaurants the first week of April 2020. So wow. all the restaurants closed. And we ate lots of lettuce. <laughs> yeah, talk about timing. Yeah, it's always interesting to... I started the podcast in March of 2020. <laughs> but it's interesting because it sort of brought to light the exact reason why this was important to talk about. The disruption in the supply chains, the loss of access to fresh local food, and just seemed like it just appeared at the right time to be having these conversations. Yeah. Actually, and- for us, the... Pandemic was obviously very harsh, but for example, it all the things that we'd been talking to, I was trying to fundraise at that time. Up to then, we had been really just moving on, on our own savings. We got some convertible notes from family and friends like at the end of 2019 because we were dry. Yeah. But actually, sort of from March 2020 onwards, like in the next three months, we managed to secure and like different business angels that we'd been talking to just suddenly like everything that we'd been explaining about how it's important to redefine the food system and stop having all this food travel thousands of kilometers but rather have the knowledge and the technology travel instead it just made sense so we especially got to one of our business angels an argentinian investor who just like said ines this is the future let's go and he decided to he just fixed the investment he closed the round and everybody else just sort of confirmed immediately and in July 2020 we closed our first round so I do think that sort of just put it in front of everybody's face of 
the way we're doing it is not working. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so funny. There's so many interesting things there. And it's always great to have the person that believes in what you're doing. And this Argentinian investor, he saw the vision. And it's sometimes the access to capital with the ability to see the bigger picture and not be influenced by events that are happening like in the present moment. Because a lot of times people constrict when events like this happen. And what I noticed, and I saw in some of my entrepreneurial friends too, there's people that actually grew during the pandemic because of the ability to think that this is an opportunity. Every recession is always an opportunity. You can always look back and every single one, 2008, you know, the the financial crisis in the States, like people understand these are cycles and that there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel and you just have to figure out where that's going to be and how you can position yourself yeah. in the best place to succeed. And it's also interesting to see that having someone who is respected and can see the vision gives the follow-up investors that little piece of confirmation that this is the right move. And that's nice to see that everyone then came on board. That was It's just so important to have that one person who believes in you because um, they sort of lead the way for the rest. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the business angels that came in in that round were really instrumental because, as I say, I mean, I have quite a global vision. It doesn't compare with the scale of the experience that these investors have. I mean, Gonzalo, the, my Argentinian investor, he was this global CEO for Luis Dreyfus, huge commodity company. Juan Ignacio, he's the current president of JD Coffee in Europe. Wow. Cesar, he's been vice president and president and sort of all these different positions in PepsiCo, in Mondelez, in Colgate, Palmolive, Jose Luis from Itabo. He's like, super reference. I mean, Rafa, Paco, I mean, they're these people that have such a wealth of experience that they've been super important for us in sort of being able to guide and validate a lot of the decisions that and a lot of hard decisions we've had to make over the past couple of years. Very interesting. What's the origin story in between you and Anna? Like, how did you guys meet? <laughs> <laughs> we met at birth. We're cousins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, Anna's my little cousin. That's great. So, okay. Yep. I think you can guess from all the references I've made to my grandparents, but they were amazing and they really kept the family very close together. Okay. So, all the cousins, we have a really tight relationship. It's like they're cousins and they're and their sisters and brothers. We've spent a third at least of our childhood together because we spent all our summers there at the village with my grandparents. So, it's a very close relationship but also she has very different skills because she's an agriculture engineer she specialized she went and, and did a master's in Wageningen she's done further training and so she brings a lot of the technical knowledge that obviously I don't have yeah yeah, yeah. it must make for really fun uh, holiday gatherings <laughs> we'll have so much family together <laughs> well yeah actually we've had a third cousin join okay. now the team family business yes it's it's not and it is i mean <laughs> it's not because obviously and, yeah. and our other founders javi and antonio they're not family and but we're also very close but yolanda she's an economist but she comes from finances so she's worked in, in controlling and now more recently in internal audits and in large public or private companies, but multinationals. I mean, now she was coming from Adeo, which is Leroy Merlin. I don't know how you pronounce it in the US and Brico Mart and these companies. So we went out to convince her to join us because our plan right now is to really grow globally. 
we want to really handle a very large market. And even though right now we're a local startup just in Madrid, we want to make sure that we establish all the controls and all the procedures and processes from the beginning that will allow us to grow quickly and to scale at the level that we aim at scaling. So we that brings us almost to the close to present day, but there's one more pivot, right? Because you've changed now, because what you're producing is not what you were producing when all of you came together. So talk about that last pivot. Yeah, I think it was the pivot itself sort of officially was last summer, so a year ago. But we had actually started in 2020 while part of us, or especially Anna, was going to the farm, to the indoor farm to work with our mini gardens, with the leafy greens, etc. A lot of us were more working from home and we started researching other crops that we could grow indoors and especially looking at crops that would have today already climate risk. So hops came very high on that list and we managed to get our hands on some rhizomes of hops. As soon as we were unconfined, they set up the R&D team, Javi and Antonio. As I said, they're researchers from the university. They're, it's always like, why not? Why not? Let's try. So, you know, they put up four plants. And a few months later, we actually had hop cones. Oh. We made lots of mistakes and we had very few hop cones, but we did have hop cones. So we started talking to some of the breweries in Spain. We realized that they had a very strong interest in finding a solution for their supply of hops. So hops, I don't know how much you know about the crop. It's very, it's grown in very few places. So I think like 40 or 45% comes from Northwestern US, from Washington State and Oregon. Around 40% comes from Germany. And then there's Czech Republic, Slovenia, China a little bit, in Japan, a little bit in New Zealand, sort of a little bit spread out. In Spain, there's like really tiny amount that's grown in the north of Spain. And it requires a lot of water. And it requires sort of long summer days and a moderate climate. Okay. And with climate change, that's being a Challenge. big problem. And there's actually research that, at least in all the European regions, the combination of extreme drought and higher summer temperatures can lead to 30% reduction in yields per hectare and up to 60% reduction in the quality of those hops. So wow. that is a big problem for brewers. If you get a hop that has half the amount of alpha acids, which is what gives it the bitterness, but twice the amount of hops to make the same beer. Okay. okay. And with the limitation in supply, if on top of that, there's a problem in, in the production, then you end up having a big issue. They, need, they buy contracts, future contracts. They need to insure those contracts. So it's really, it's a bit of a nightmare for them to supply themselves <laughs> with the hops. So really the interest of this was, we saw it very quickly. We actually finally partnered with, it's one of the main brewers in Spain. It's a medium-sized brewer at a global scale, Estrella Galicia. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you've tried the beer. I think I have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was in Spain, yeah, it's yeah. It's very, very good, and it is about to get better, so with our hops, so yeah. <laughs> They're a family-owned business, and for us, it was very important that we really connected in terms of values. Oh, okay, yeah. They are very focused on sort of sustainability, on doing things right, on making sure you have natural ingredients, so on innovation, on doing things differently, so... 
there was really like a love match in those first conversations. And they actually were also very quick in taking a decision. So, you know, we just, it was a very quick engagement. So yeah. And that, that's interesting. Yeah, we started in parallel, the leafy greens are and the microgreens were not pulling off, we weren't getting the rotation that we were expecting. And okay. we were still a small company with limited resources. And at one point, we actually had one of these advisory board meetings where I had all in business angels, and we had an amazing <laughs> conversation. I actually, I record the meetings and I've watched it like five times because it was like the best MBA class ever, you know, having all those different perspectives of all these people that have so much experience, but they really, they helped us to take a very hard decision, which was sort of parting with, or at least for the time being with our leafy greens. So, and focusing all our efforts on hops. Well, it's interesting that the timing is funny because a friend of mine here in Minneapolis invited me out to a boat and we have some friends, mutual friends, and one of our friends is a brewer. <laughs> so we were having this conversation yesterday on the boat, as a matter of fact, and I was telling him, I'm speaking to someone tomorrow and they grow hops indoors. He's like, indoors? He's like, you can do that? He's like, he was really like amazed, but he was just explaining like how his process is and how important every single ingredient is like in the flavor composition of the beer and shout out to Arbiter Brewery here in Minneapolis. He's the head brewer there, my friend, Aaron. If he wants to talk to me, more than happy to do so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been talking to any companies in the States? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. We'll get there. Yeah. How big is the company now? So right now we have nine people and growing. So I hope to incorporate probably two more people by September and then three more by... November. Yeah. So we are growing. I think we have a really cool team. You know, it's probably not very humble to say it myself. (laughs) I'm probably the most unsurprising of all of them, but it's really, I mean, I think growing hops and doors is not easy. It's very hard. It's not a simple crop. It's a very complex problem. And addressing such a complex problem requires sort of a complex solution that requires this combination of lots of different skills. So we have Anna is an agricultural engineer, but Javi and Antonio are chemists. Julen is a biotechnologist. Dani is a computer scientist. Andrea is a specialist in mechatronics and microsystems. Arantxa is lab technician. Yolanda and I are economists. So it's this combination of all this different knowledge that is really allowing us to work very closely and sort of trying to figure out these ways of addressing it and making it work. And I think it's really sort of the, we're, we're seeing the fruits. Actually, we started harvest today. So it's a very okay. exciting okay. day. <laughs> uh, do you do videos of the inside of the production? We're actually going to be recording a video tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So I'll All share right. it when it's ready. Yeah, yeah, please do. Are there anyone else that you know of that's doing hops and doors? We've seen there's like a small startup in Finland that's doing, Okay. I think they're doing it a bit more complex and yeah. I don't know if they're just not too much online or I'm just not finding it because it's all in Finnish and my Finnish is not very good, but yeah, they seem to be going not very fast. And then Aerofarms tried hops. Oh, okay. So, and I talked to them at the Indoor Act Deck actually last month, so they weren't too open about sharing information about what they were doing, but I'm you know, sure. it was I'm obviously, sure. but yeah. So I think there's few of us, but I think eventually there'll be more, but we hope to be really the best just by the fact that we're yeah, really, we're focused on this. We're just doing this yeah. and we have 
all the brain power just doing this. I think also the partnership from Estrella Galicia is very important because we're working very closely with them. It's really true open innovation at heart. And they're giving us feedback on the quality, on their experience. And I think we're going much faster because there is this really close relationship between us and them. Are you getting the attention of the conventional hops farmers now? Yes. <laughs> they have a lot of questions. I'm sure they're curious about what you Yeah, actually, earlier this month, in early July, there was the International Hops Convention Group Convention. Okay. I don't remember the exact name. I didn't go to that. My The scientific team attended and they presented a poster there. They actually took a cluster of hops that they just cut from the plant because they were ready for harvest. And they took it and harvesting of hops in the Northern Hemisphere only happens in September. So nobody has hops right now ready for harvest. And so that was like, okay, if you don't believe me, here. <laughs> Here's the fresh hops. I harvested it this morning and here yeah. it is. And they got a lot of attention. They got a lot of questions, a lot of doubts. The product itself is speaking straight at them. And I think it's maybe some of them will be finding it as a threat, but I hope they do see it as an opportunity. I mean, basically what we want to bring is climate resiliency to a crop that will eventually sure. disappear if we don't do anything yeah. about it. Because obviously, I mean, I don't know how the harvest is going to be this year, but it's not looking good. We have a crop, a hop farmer here in Spain that thought we had a heat wave in May. And he said his plants started flowering in May and they weren't big enough. So, you know, he's lost. He knows he's not going to be getting much yield because of that unusual heat coming two months early. So, I mean, I think this is not the same as with sort of this debate that there is usually between vertical farming and traditional farming. I don't think it's an either or. It's really how can we work together to find a solution to a very difficult problem that we've generated for ourselves over decades of not paying attention to taking care of the planet. And what's the entire growth cycle look like for hops from very beginning? When you think about the conversations I've had with others, we need to take leafy greens. It's the seed to the seedling to then to where it's grown indoors. And I'm curious what the equivalent is for that cycle of hops. So hops outdoors, they usually multiply by rhizomes that they put on the ground and they'll start sort of coming out in March and they'll be harvesting normally in September. So they get one crop cycle per year and then they go through the winter. Indoors, it's completely different. So we've actually been able to use in vitro plants, which is great because this completely sort of helps us to shelter ourselves from pests, disease, fungi. So it goes from a lab-like condition to a lab-like condition indoors. So we use no pesticides, no herbicides, nothing because we are sheltered from the outdoors. And then actually the harvest that we're starting today, today is three and a half months since we transplanted the in vitro plants. So it is quite amazing. Um, We think that by the next iteration, we'll probably bring it down to three. So we would be able to get four crop cycles per year, which is amazing. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. What's a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Many. (laughs) I have tough questions every day. I mean, that's what being an entrepreneur, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, obviously, it was tough to let go of our leafy greens. And it's also 
tough to be making these choices about the speed of how to do things, of being more cautious and trying to advance sort of slowly but surely, which is sort of the way that we've advanced right now. But I think at this time, we're realizing that we need to have a combination of slowly but surely, but also sort of being more ambitious and probably being able to do that scaling much quicker, even though it takes us into our outside of our comfort zone. If there is such a thing of a comfort zone (laughs) when you're starting or running a business. But yeah, it is difficult. You make difficult choices, I think, every single day. Every day. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I'll be the first one to vouch for the power and the strength of really going niche because now not only are you an indoor farmer now, but you're specifically early adopters in the, in this crop, right? In hops. And I think there is power because you're learning things. Probably people are figuring out for the first time in terms of how to work with this crop indoors and all the intricacies and discovering. And it feels like you have just the right team there with all the proper skill sets to continue to innovate and try new things. But I think if I may add that on this idea of the niche product, it's true that, and I've been, I just finished off the new funding round, but it's taken me six, seven months, talking to a lot of VCs. And many of them are saying, no, this is, beer hops is a small market. It is sort of niche. But the thing is, what we see is that hops really has a lot of potential beyond beer. So hops is, it's a cousin of cannabis and its essential oils have many of the similar properties that CBD has without obviously all the psychotropical (laughs) derivatives. So it's really the uh, stress relief, the fighting insomniac. It's even been proven to address the symptoms of menopause for women. The santumol that it contains has really strong anti-tumoral properties. So there's a lot of potential for this, both in terms of functional food and drink, also in terms of medicinal products for pharma industry, and even for cosmetics. I mean, and it's been known that it has a lot of potential for cosmetics. It's just not used there because you can't outdoors, you can't grow it without pesticides and herbicides. So you can't use it for cosmetics and for pharma. But indoors, you can. So we do think that there's, even though it's coming as sort of a small niche, I think we're going to make this really huge. That's interesting. And I do believe that eventually this will be sort of the new CBD. That's very interesting. I mean, it sort of opens up opportunities which aren't even on the map yet, but they're in your mind and in terms of the possibilities. So just obviously starting with the crop and the relationships with the brewers, but because of the medicinal qualities and because of your ability to control the consistency, because this is really the big thing. One of the conversations from last night that I had was how amazed he, because he's a small brewery, they've got a small shop a brewery here in, in Minneapolis, but he just marvels when he thinks about like Coors Light, how they're able to consistently like create the same flavor profile for that beer at that massive scale, which is another skill set. But I imagine being able to deliver consistent product with every cycle, I think is something that's very attractive, I would imagine. That's actually our biggest selling point. And that's what's opening also the doors to some of the global brewers too. But also they like the fact that we do it pesticide free, that we have a 20 times lower water footprint, that we use only renewable energy, that we can grow any cultivar anywhere in the world. There's really a lot of selling points that we bring. But the first one is that guaranteed supply in terms of quantity and quality that really makes their life lots easier. 
So what's the roadmap look like? I know there's a lot we've talked about, but maybe even just thinking about 12 months and obviously plans can change, but in terms of the current business model, who you're looking to partner with, what's that look like for you? So right now we're building pilot facility in Galicia with Estrella Galicia, Northwestern Spain. Okay. That's going to be a thousand square meters. And we'll be obviously making some mistakes in that and incorporating that into the design so that we can scale to a larger commercial scale, which will be 10,000 square meters. Also with Estrella Galicia next to their new factory. And it's actually going to be pretty cool because we will be able to develop sort of synergies that would make it even more sustainable. For example, like using the CO2 from the fermentation process to feed into the plants so that they can do the photosynthesis wow. faster or using all the excess water that they have, just filtering that and being able to use it to water the plants. So it's really going to be, obviously, we need to do all the numbers to make that claim, but sure. as carbon and water neutral as possible. So I think that's going to be pretty cool. That should be the next 18, 24 months for us. But we're already having conversations with global brewers worldwide to start negotiating, okay, where do you want us to build it in 2024? So if there's a brewer listening to me and they're interested <laughs> in discussing this, we're more than happy. We do want to have our pilot ready before we start sure. anything else anywhere else because we do want to make sure that we can do this at scale yeah. but from then on i think the world is going to be small yeah what's so fascinating is this ability to build this synergistic relationship between the brewer who has a really vested interest in the quality and the consistency of the core ingredient for their product and just being able to and then leveraging the fact that you're using and sharing resources together, which I think is very smart. It sort of reminds me in a way of sometimes when you see these animals that have these synergistic relationships, like you'll see this shark and there's like this other fish that's connected to it. And they just like, they need each other yeah. <laughs> in a way that's very beneficial to both. And I think that's also the future of how we're going to make growth more sustainable. If we sure. try to find these synergies between different industries or different companies so that there's less waste and yeah. what's waste for them is an input for me so there's no such thing as waste yeah so you did make a call out to the brewers but to your peers in the vertical farming space given the audience for this podcast is there a specific ask or anything you want to share with that audience I think many of the players in the vertical farming industry are looking at other crops. And I think the indoor ag tech, there was a session where we actually presented, which was what's beyond leafy greens. And I think it's a good moment to use all the lessons we've learned from growing leafy greens or microgreens or herbs and really try to use that, all that accumulated experience to be able to come up with new crops that actually the ones that are already having climate risk, that we can start solving all those problems too. I think that would be something really cool for the whole industry to do. Yeah. What's your next conference you plan on attending? I don't have any plans right now. I think we have pretty heavy six months ahead with a new pilot and <laughs> yeah. just finished the round. So it's a bit exhausted. Um, you need to catch your breath. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of work to do sort of here, focused here. Yeah. But yeah, we'll have for 2021, oh, 2023, sorry, we'll be looking at other events that we can take part in, certainly. Yeah. Well, Inez, I want to thank you for reaching out and connecting with me at the conference. I'm really always excited. I never really understood where this journey would take me when I started the podcast, but I'm just going to Indoor Ag Tech NYC. I came back with probably 20 plus names, <laughs> people to interview for the show. You yeah, obviously yours was one of them. And but just seeing 
where the industry is going in terms of different crops and people doing really fun and interesting things has really been fascinating. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and the story of Econoque. And I think it's really exciting and inspiring for people who are also thinking of branching out beyond leafy greens and seeing what the future is and hearing about your challenges, but also hearing about your successes as well. So I think that's going to be really inspiring for the listener. Right. I'm happy to share. And it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation. And I look forward to hearing other episodes too, because I do find all the guests that you have on your show really inspiring. There's always yeah, a part that I are. take from the conversation that really keeps me thinking for a while. And it's great to motivate and to bring out ideas that maybe we hadn't thought of. So thank you. Yeah. And it'll be interesting, I guess, when you listen to this episode, because now you're hearing yourself on the show. <laughs> That's going to be weird. <laughs> well, Econoki.com, anywhere else you want to send folks to connect or learn more? Yeah, also in LinkedIn. Okay. So Econoki, and you'll find us there. And certainly yeah. they can reach out to me directly through LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure. Usually tend to reply fairly quickly. Not the first week of August, I'm going to be disappeared. But anywhere else, <laughs> yes. Yeah, we'll be sure to include all those links in the show notes. Thanks, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Inez for coming on the show and sharing her really inspiring story. I'll be following their journey very closely. I always appreciate it when they share an hour of their time. It's not anything I take lightly. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We go through a lot of work in putting these together for you, the listener. It's a summary, timestamps, key takeaways, and any resources mentioned in the show so you can focus your time on listening and not worry about having to take notes as you're listening to the show because there's a lot of value-packed information in these episodes, as I'm sure you'll agree. Thanks again to our Season 6 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co to see if a podcast would be helpful for you or your brand. As a reminder, if you are enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and we'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next episode for another fascinating conversation with a female founder from the world of vertical farming. Amy Wu, Chief Content Director of From Farms to Incubators. Amy was another contact from Indoor Ag Tech. I got to see her talk at the last day of the conference, and I'm so glad I did. We had a fantastic conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you, and that's coming up next episode. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.